Welcome all uh, to today's call. Uh, we ended last week's call noting that developments were likely to happen fast, but I don't think anybody envisaged uh, the appointment of a new prime minister, Britain's third in the last 50 days, uh, essentially on the flip of a dime. So Sunak's become the 57th UK prime minister. He just gave a speech on the steps of Downing Street as is customary. Uh, he noted Truss's failings. He made clear uh, that his government would be built around competence uh, and compassion. Uh, and actually, his premiership was as a result, in part, due to the failings of Truss, which he now seeks to repair. But on this call, you know, we're not going to go through the machinations of the party leadership race that we've all uh, just endured over the weekend. And yesterday, clearly, Sunak was the only candidate uh, receiving the requisite nominations, or at least the only candidate with them to be prepared to go forward in the race. And he ultimately won by default in that regard. So instead of going through the machinations on that, I thought we'd go through the challenges that Sunak's new government is going to face, because clearly there are uh, many. Lila, if I can start with you, clearly the downfall of trust, you know, the shortest prime minister that we've seen in the UK's history was due to a lack of support amongst her parliamentary colleagues, particularly with respect to her agenda that was sort of foisted upon everybody without really being exposed to the public and her party in full. Sunak secured 60% or so of the support of his parliamentary colleagues, 358 or so Conservative MPs in his bid for the job, which is actually quite historically favourable. But what do we think about the parliamentary dynamics? Is he going to face problems? I think a lot will hang on his cabinet appointments, pulling in people that have perhaps previously served and been close allies of his, but also clearly people from the further right of of the party to him and also uh, allies of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. If he's able to kind of successfully do that and kind of get the proportions of that correct and get the right people um, into the right jobs, I think that will do something to kind of calm the ship in terms of saying to the to the party, you know, there's a place for everyone potentially uh, in cabinet or at least in ministerial posts. I also think the context is somewhat more favourable than with trust in the context of what's happened with trust and the number of um, leadership contests you've had in, in quick succession and indeed the number of prime ministers. I think the party is probably quite willing to kind of compromise on its preference. A party members of party MPs are quite willing to compromise on their preferences in terms of saying that, you know, ultimately they now need to get behind Sunak. But clearly there are going to be kind of quite serious uh, tests. I imagine they won't kind of come immediately, but things that come to mind are kind of things like uh, the way that Sunak pursues a policy on uh, immigration, which has been an issue that's divided the party previously and indeed uh, divided the last trust government um, leading to the the resignation of or partially leading to the resignation of the Home Secretary. And likewise, issues uh, like the Northern Ireland Protocol, you could see um, being quite divisive among the party with kind of some more hard line uh, than Sunak's anticipated positions. So there are a few kind of areas that are likely to kind of boil up over uh, the coming months. And and really, that will be the test of Sunak, not perhaps kind of this first fiscal event or necessarily kind of the coming 
days. So, so one of the reasons why Johnson, it seems, ultimately opted not to run is even though it seems he did have the, the nominations uh, required to do so, um, he felt, and ultimately, I guess, a few members of his team felt, that he wasn't just able to manage the opposition to him within the parliamentary party. And Sunak uh, will, will have some opposition, and I know there have been some comments from people like Christopher Chope and Nadine Dorries, etc. Do we think, though, that the same amount of opposition there would have been to Johnson in the parliamentary party will, will pose a real compromise to Sunak's ability just in general, to be in office? Are there going to be people just constantly inveighing against him, plotting against him with spreadsheets and, and the like? Or is actually there's just going to be an acceptance that we're on the third prime minister, you know, between elections, and they're just going to have to stomach Sunak? I think that's right. I think the fact is, actually, as well, during the leadership contest, he did manage to pull MPs from all factions of the party. And that just wasn't true of his previous um, campaign over the summer. And frankly, I think that helps because I think the problem is when when there's when there's a sort of single faction of the party, as happened under Truss, that that just sort of won't, won't really get behind um, the sitting prime minister, that is when you kind of get the plotting because there's the kind of momentum for that whole group to kind of spend all their time uh, just sort of singularly um, plotting um, against that against that person. So so I think the, the dynamics have, have shifted somewhat. I also think kind of the powers of patronage are quite strong here. And I think Sunak is going to be very aware that those initial cabinet appointments and also the kind of opportunities he suggests that there might be um, in the future for um, ambitious MPs or former ministers are going to be very helpful to him um, in keeping the show on the road. And I think he has those powers in the way that um, Trust didn't, frankly, because she chose to um, appoint a cabinet of of, of really her allies. So, so, so let, let's just get on to the, the issue of, of the cabinet. You know, he's clearly going to be appointing probably the very senior members of the cabinet Today, but Alex, so I want to, to to ask you about this specific issue with respect to government appointments, because clearly one of the ways uh, in which a prime minister falls is through on mass sort of cabinet resignations, and we've seen that afflict uh, Theresa May. We saw it afflict uh, Boris Johnson. Um, but do we think, as a result of that, Sunak is going to be minded to appoint people predominantly? who are closed supporters, a bit like Lila was describing with respect to trust? Or is he going to appoint a few members of the sort of cadre of, of Johnson's core team? Maybe James Cleverly remains as foreign secretary uh, and the like. Do we think he's going to do that? Uh, well, let's just be clear. Governments fall when they totally lose the confidence of the of the party. And this is what's occurred over the course of the last few uh, prime ministers, it's not so much been about the uh, resignations of ministers being a cause as a symptom and the final way to get rid of the prime minister. Uh, what I do think you will find, though, is that Rishi Sunak will try and correct for some of the errors that occurred under both Johnson and Truss, where they were rather um, rather keen to cut out people who hadn't supported them. Uh, and therefore, you will find that rather than was the case with Liz Truss, where only uh, three cabinet ministers out of her 34 attending cabinet didn't support her, you will find actually that uh, Sunak will try to bridge some of those gaps in that way that you've described. 
However, there will be a bit of a self-selecting tendency. So we've already seen that Brandon Lewis uh, and Jacob Rees-Mogg have both resigned from government. They were both prominent Johnson and then Trust supporters. Uh, and so, you know, you can't totally paper over the cracks just through um, appointing, you know, the right combination of people. Fundamentally, this has to be a government that functions and fundamentally uh, you're going to have to draw from across the party to do that, but it's not going to be a panacea. Um, that being said, clearly Sunak will try and unite the party, but obviously if you say that uniting, you're uniting the party, typically you're not. Uh, you know, you, you can't just wish a party to be united. What he needs to show is a bit of forward momentum uh, with regards to his agenda, with regards to sorting out the... Um, uh, economic inheritance has been left by Truss and Johnson, uh, and that's going to be a more important aspect of whether he succeeds in the long run. And, and on the advisory team, you know, it's usually the case that a new prime minister coming in, they'll give their speech on the steps of Downing Street and towards the other end of, of, of the road, uh, towards number 12 Downing Street, there's a large group of people, you know, their team that they're going to be bringing in to the building with them. That was absent today. There was nobody in the street um, at the end, you know, alongside Sunak. What do we think this suggests? Is it going to be a really close-knit, tight operation uh, that is made formed of sort of the people he had when he was Chancellor? I think it suggests that he doesn't want people to think that government is a victory parade for Richie Sunak, which was kind of some of the slightly unfortunate optics given off um, the last couple of times this uh, has been done. Uh, Undoubtedly, yes, that he will carry over a load of advisors with him that worked uh, in the Treasury for him and also uh, on the leadership campaign. Uh, however, what was notable about Rishi Sunak and in terms of people's conversations about him when he was operating at the Treasury was that he would take advice from officials. He would, you know, the the sort of the uh, the governing modus operandi would operate through the usual channels as well as through his informal advisory team. Uh, and, you know, in terms of appointments such as Richard Sharp, who's now chairman of the BBC Trust, uh, that he um, uh, that he made uh, when he was in the Treasury uh, to be one of his advisors there, uh, it demonstrates that he is keen to try and have experience around the table uh, in order to help him sort of get different perspectives uh, and make sure he can do his job properly. Now, that maybe all sounds a bit Panglossian, but that's the sort of the ideation that he has of himself. Clearly, one of the big problems, though, is that uh, you've got a very big set of rocks and hard places uh, in the form of spending reduction and tax rises that the guy is going to have to navigate if he's going to be successful. Well, this is the third challenge that I, I wanted to walk through. And, and Sunak obviously noted in his speech just now that you know, his premiership was a, a, in part a result of, of Truss's failings. Uh, and one of the main failings was that the cost of government borrowing uh, has, has increased uh, quite substantially because of the, you know, what was one of the ramifications of, of the ill uh, fought through growth plan and the, and the tax measures that were unfunded uh, within it. Uh, so what do we think Sunak is going to do with respect to the medium-term fiscal plan that's in the diary for Halloween? You know, is it going to be, because we've seen potential moves of, of spending cuts, you know, Hunt is obviously at the helm, marshalling the plan at the moment. You know, he might, it seems probably it will be the case that it will be retained. But is this Halloween plan going to be sort of trick or, or treat? Uh, 
So it's a good tabloid question that. that. Um, uh, right. So I think it probably will take place on Halloween. It is possible that you end up with some slippage, but I think the Treasury is particularly keen to make sure that it comes before the next Monetary Policy Committee uh, set of decisions about interest rates uh, on the 3rd of November. One of the problems with the growth plan was that uh, it took place the day after what the markets viewed as an insufficient rise in interest rates, especially considering the uh, the plans that were in the growth plan at the time, the fiscal plans. Um, so I think it will be this side of uh, November the 3rd. I think in terms of market reassurance, keeping it on October the 31st makes sense. Uh, and I think the uh, beauty of this very, very short leadership contest is that it has allows, is that it allows uh, Rishi Sunak and the new chancellor, potentially Jeremy Hunt, will stay on um, to just kind of iron out some of these plans. Unfortunately, from the perspective of Treasury orthodoxy, if you want to call it that, you have a former chancellor who knows his onions when it comes to fiscal events. Um, so I think there should be a fairly you know, good basis for that to, um, to be taking place on October the 31st. Now, I don't suggest, though, for an instant that it's not going to require a very difficult set of decisions for secretaries of state who are going to have to effectively be making pitches into uh, this process, really sometimes in the first one or two days in the job, um, uh, about what spending looks like in their, that area, what they really need to achieve on Rishi Sunak's um, vision of delivering on the 2019 manifesto and delivering fiscal uh, stability. Uh, and, and so I think you are going to see, you know, even with two quite capable figures at the top, <coughs> a fair bit of decision-making on the hoof by government. And so therefore I, I would expect as well that over the coming months after Halloween, we will see another series of decisions about how you, um, you know, about how you uh, uh, make those uh, decisions on fiscal consolidation and where the act genuinely does fall, what's saved, what's prioritised, etc. The, the final challenge I want to go through before referencing other areas is is this drumbeat uh, that we seem to have in relation to a, a general election and, and the potential for one. Uh, sooner uh, than we might expect. Now, Sunak has potentially a legitimacy problem. He is the third prime minister between uh, general elections, and the opposition is very determined uh, to have um, a general election, given that the Conservatives are trailing uh, in the polls uh, really quite substantially. Is there any real mechanism they can use to bring one about? Uh, what do we think uh, is likely with respect to the date of the next general election? I mean, I, I would always bank on the first Thursday in May uh, of 2024. There is a mechanism by which a general election could be brought about, but it requires about 35 Conservative MPs to vote that they have no confidence in the government. Um, I don't see that happening. I think that was a prospect under Liz Truss. I think it would have been a prospect had Boris Johnson uh, won the leadership. Um, but, but, but you know, clearly those are now kind of past hypotheticals. Uh, you know, should we have another catastrophic leadership crisis, then yes, it's possible it could happen. But otherwise, it's just in the hands of the prime minister. Uh, now, 
you know, the prime minister could decide to call one early. He could say that there is a legitimacy question that needs to be skewered. It's quite a high risk tactic. It needs to be backed up with a serious political strategy. I don't get the sense that Rishi Sunak is the person who's going to engage in high wire antics like that, as was the case with Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson in 2019. Uh, and so I think we're looking at an 18 month time frame, notably because also uh, Rishi Sunak needs to demonstrate that he's got a grip on the economy, uh, that he things are improving under his watch, and that he can actually tell a credible story that he can take to the electorate. Um, now, I don't think, though, that uh, there will be some Tory MPs over the weekend saying that uh, by voting for Rishi Sunak, they give themselves a fighting chance at the next election. Um I mean, it depends on your definition of fighting chance. At the moment, the Conservatives are 30 points behind. Uh, It will be a real triumph if uh, at the end of this week or at the end of these next two weeks, the Conservatives are only 15 points behind. And bear in mind that a 15-point lead for Labour at a general election points to about a 60-70 seat majority for Keir Starmer. So I don't think we should, uh, as we work out our strategies for the next two years, and as the various people on this call will be doing, uh, banking wholly on Rishi Sunak kind of completing some sort of tremendous headingly 2019-style victory, um, you know, grabbing it from the jaws of defeat. I think it's also worth paying a decent amount of attention to what the Labour Party is doing, the policy-making processes for the Labour Party, uh, and and how that is going to interact with the situation we may find ourselves in in 2024. Yes. And Lila, I want to turn now to domestic policy under Sunak. You know, clearly we've had essentially two leadership uh, bids uh, by him uh, within this year, and, and the summer bid uh, entailed a, a very broad uh, policy prospectus. Um, he said in his speech that he wants to remain wedded to the Conservative Party's manifesto, uh, and that that ultimately uh, has has a very large number of sort of broad uh, commitments. But what do we think about those commitments and aligning them with the policies he set out in the summer? What what does his domestic agenda involve over the next eighteen months? So maybe to start with the things that I think will stay similar and also kind of are key, I think, to his vision of delivering on the manifesto. I think the first, and you've got this very clearly from his um, speech on uh, number 10 uh, just earlier uh, today, was that he will continue to focus on public services and how they're delivered. And, you know, some of that is going to be about finding efficiencies, but some of that is clearly about going to be about um, ensuring that they really receive the same um, level of spending commitment and same level of focus as they did under Johnson. So I don't think we should expect any dialing down of the rhetoric around um, the importance of kind of getting the health system um, sorted and dealing with the COVID-19 backlogs. I also think another another interesting thing that we saw um, in that speech was he will continue to focus on levelling up. As I understand it, levelling up was kind of being subtly dropped from some government messaging under the trust government. I don't think that will happen under Sunak, not necessarily because he has the kind of Johnson levels of kind of commitment to it. Um, You know, it wasn't his slogan, 
But because I think he recognises that it's quite key to maintaining that electoral coalition uh, that was uh, established in the 2019 election and and continuing to retain some of those red wall seats that will ensure uh, that the Conservative Party doesn't lose the next election. So I think that will remain an area of focus for him. In terms of areas where we might see a kind of bit of change in focus or a bit of a kind of recalibration, I think... Uh, he clearly wants to his government to be characterized by um, a degree of kind of uh, fiscal stability and sensibleness and kind of a proper balancing of the books. Um, and, you know, clearly that's for reasons of reassuring the markets. But I think it's also for reasons that that is kind of fundamentally what uh, Sunak believes in. I think he is totally convinced by kind of Treasury orthodoxy that was so um, uh, uh, so uh, absent necessarily from from Truss's initial um, vision and ideas in terms of what she put forward. I also think the kind of final thing is that Sunak will be very aware that he needs to put forward his own vision for growth and productivity. And some of that, I think, will come from kind of supply side reforms that he wanted to enact that probably weren't kind of um, key pieces of the 2019 manifesto. So I think something that's particularly interesting to look at is his 20, is his actually earlier this year, his February May's lecture, uh, which was a speech that he gave where he highlighted um, areas where he felt that the UK's growth had been kind of stagnating and and, and possible reforms to increase uh, UK productivity. So those were in areas like um, R&D tax credits, um, some reform of the apprenticeship levy, and also um, some some a, a kind of deeper look at um, at uh, how businesses, how and why businesses choose to invest. Um, notably, when he was chancellor, he introduced the super deduction. And I think we should kind of expect a, a reconsideration of policies like that, uh, which are intended to encourage business investment. I think that's a kind of real personal hobby horse of his. And just on this issue of investment, you know, clearly a major area for the future of the UK economy is, is net zero policy. Uh, and the approach that the government has with respect to it. Now, it was somewhat sort of stunted, stymied uh, by the Liz Truss uh, administration. She appointed Chris Skidmore to lead a review on it, but he ultimately resigned. Uh, might he come back uh, and finish the job? How do we think Sunak uh, will generally approach um, policy with respect to net zero? Look, I don't think Sunak has a massive personal interest in kind of net zero policy. It certainly wasn't the area he kind of massively focused on um, while he was at the Treasury. And indeed, he was very interested in those questions around um, kind of an equitable equitable transition, ensuring that the net zero transition wasn't kind of falling on uh, the poorest people in society and, and that people were kind of brought along with it, which were a lot of the questions that the Chris Skidmore review was initially intended to kind of answer sort of the the, the how you transition as well as the kind of transition itself. Um, certainly he remains committed to net zero, but what that actually means in practice it isn't that clear. I think the one reason that Sunak might be somewhat more interested in this um, and somewhat more willing to commit some funds to um, certain pits of the net zero transition is because currently um, government um, is on the hook for our energy bills, or, or at least a portion of our energy bills until April. And I think that makes things like sort of demand management type interventions like uh, uh, home energy efficiency measures a bit more um, palatable kind of the changes the economics of them somewhat. So I could think we could see some kind of interventions in that type of area. I certainly think you'll probably have a greater interest in energy policy insofar as that relates 
um, to net zero. So um, I think that's an area to particularly watch. And you know, so that that's sort of a broad overview of, of domestic policy. But Alex, I, I want to turn to you because clearly, you know, geopolitically, there are major events going on in the world. With respect to international relations and, and foreign policy, you know, Sunak stated during his leadership campaign in the summer that his first overseas visit as, as the UK's premier would be to Ukraine. Uh, do we think that that's going to happen? Do we think he's going to deviate in any way from the sort of broad Western alliance and the UK's role uh, within it? What's his approach on China going to be? That was an issue uh, during uh, the, the last leadership campaign. He went for, you know, there are accusations that he was too close to China, etc. But what do we think about his approach towards foreign policy and international relations? Uh, well, like all policy, it's going to be determined a little bit by what is in the country's interest and a little bit about what is in his political interest. And I think it's worth thinking about going from kind of the near abroad to kind of geographically further overseas. So when it comes to the European Union and the UK's relationship with the EU, you can see Rishi Sunak being slightly more uh, uh, slightly more accommodating on the questions around the Northern Ireland Protocol and pushing towards a deal. He will, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he kept in place Steve Baker and Chris Eaton-Harris at the Northern Ireland office. Clearly, this prediction could be out of date in a few minutes' time. Uh, but I think it was quite significant that Steve Baker did a joint op-ed with Simon Hoare, who is the Northern Ireland Select Committee chairman and a big supporter of Rishi Sunak, uh, just at the weekend, which pointed towards uh, finding a kind of a negotiated agreement uh, on the protocol. Uh, that should hopefully help him. Uh, I mean, that should hopefully help Rishi Sunak, from Rishi Sunak's perspective, deliver a bit more growth by having a slightly easier and more certain trading relationship with the EU. And remember as well, you know, people carry their previous jobs into their current role. Rishi Sunak was chancellor. He will be carrying that role into his approach to foreign affairs. Um, and I think that means that when it comes to China, and I'll kind of come on to, to, to Russia and the war in Ukraine in a moment, that when it comes to China, he will be um, wanting to maintain a relationship commercially where it is safe to do so, where national security is not at risk. However, I suspect that uh, the geopolitics of the situation are probably going to define Rishi Sunak's approach to this more than what Rishi Sunak would like to do when given a blank piece of paper. Um, the party congress uh, that we saw uh, this weekend cementing Xi Jinping's um, uh, you know, future effectively at the apex of Chinese politics, combined with what Biden has done with regards to export controls, are probably much more significant when it comes to what the UK is able to do with China uh, than, than, than where Rishi Sunak wants to go. When it comes to Ukraine and Russia, the only option that Rishi Sunak can take is basically uh, pressing forward with the agenda set by Boris Johnson, being a strong kind of partner to Ukraine, donating a huge amount of uh, arms and insight and intelligence. Um, alongside America. I think clearly when he talks about a role for Boris Johnson at home and abroad, as he did yesterday, an obvious thing to do there would be to kind of make Boris Johnson sort of 
special envoy to Ukraine, or you know, as there have been reports that Johnson will be spending more time in America, where he will try and shore up Republican support uh, in advance and after the midterms uh, for the current administration, the current DC administration's approach to Ukraine. Um, I mean, obviously, as part of all of this. And, and the Ukraine policy is no different. There are costs. So there is the material cost to UK defence spending. There is the cost in terms of uh, ongoing uh, high energy bills. Um, clearly, at some point, Rishi Sunak will want to see a resolution to these costs. Uh, but it will be a political third rail. And I suspect the, you know, the... Um, uh, the apparatus and this kind of the securocrats, for want of a better term, will be very, very clear what what the trade offs are there. And uh, you know, he was obviously in the cabinet when all these decisions were being taken. One final thing about costs: we are unlikely, I feel, to see three percent of GDP going on defence spending uh, on the current timetable. I, I expect it will get pushed to the right. The question over whether Ben Wallace stays on as defence secretary is a very pertinent one. Um, but I think there was a perception that even when Liz Truss was promising it during the leadership campaign, uh, that uh, it was probably unaffordable. It probably is even more so now without significant spending cuts in other areas. Uh, how they square that circle, how they provide reassurance on NATO membership, et cetera, will be one to watch in the coming weeks. Yeah, I mean, you, you referenced at the beginning of your answer uh, the approach towards the European Union and, and relations with, with Europe. We have a question, and we've just got a few minutes remaining, but we have had a, a few come through. But one of them is with respect specifically uh, to a potential sort of fresh start uh, with the EU. And, and somebody asked whether we'll be rejoining the single market and the customs union. I think we can say uh, confidently that wouldn't be possible uh, with respect to the current parliamentary dynamics. But what do we think about sort of the Northern Ireland protocol issue? What do we think about the government's general approach uh, with respect to uh, EU relations? Maybe Lila, you could handle this one. Sure. I think the main thing is that there will be a substantial focus on finding a negotiated solution as opposed to kind of progressing the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. I mean, it's in the Lords now, but I think, you know, we always knew it was going to have a pretty difficult time in the Lords anyway. And actually, I think the government can use that as a good excuse to focus much more on um, negotiations with the EU. As Alex mentioned, I think Rishi Sunak is ideologically um, more inclined to do that. I think he's quite um, reticent about the trade impacts of, of, of pursuing um, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol and, and, and then the fact of um, the EU's retaliatory measures. Um, and I think the only kind of caveat I would add to that is kind of how much latitude he has to pursue that negotiated solution within the party. I think if he um, manages to keep people like Chris Heaton-Harris and Steve Baker in the tent and in those kind of key Northern Ireland roles, I think that's really quite helpful to him. And if they are willing to kind of suck up a negotiated solution that deals with some of the UK's um, at, at some of the UK's and the unionist community in Northern Ireland's issues with the protocol, that, that will get you quite far. But I think um, if they kind of leave, you know, either don't feel that they can agree to that or don't remain in those roles, I think there's a bit of risk that certain factions in the ERG will become quite concerned about Rishi Sunak's um, attitudes there. So I think he has a bit of latitude initially, but it requires him to keep, keep those ERGers or former ERGers in the tent. And, and one last question I'll ask is with respect to 
uh, energy policy. Now, one of the commitments of Rishi Sunak in his summer campaign was to split uh, the business department uh, and energy policy. So we used to have in the UK a department for energy and climate change that was abolished. Um, and, and we now have sort of an amalgamated uh, set of portfolios under Bayes. Uh, do we think that he's actually going to deliver on that promise? I mean, it seems like it's uh, a pretty big decision to make, given all of the challenges at this point. Look, I think there is a rationale for doing it, which is that energy policy has kind of never been a bigger issue. And clearly there's kind of a, 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 a wider question rather than just kind of how do we facilitate the energy transition? There's now a bigger question about energy security and also the cost of, of interventions in energy to the exchequer. That said, I think it's a massive machinery of government change at, at this relatively late stage in the kind of electoral cycle that will waste quite a lot of time and resources. So I think that will be kind of weighing on his mind. I also think um, a lot of the decisions about the kind of future of energy support schemes that have been announced so far will really be quite tightly held in the Treasury. So I think there's a bit of a question of why you would kind of create a rival um, base of power um, to the Treasury and making those decisions, as I reckon, um, I think they'll I think they'll be pretty held tightly closed um, within the Treasury and number 10. Great. Well, that concludes uh, today's call. We greatly Welcome the fact that you've all dialed in at uh, very tumultuous times, obviously, in, in the UK. And hopefully uh, Sunak's uh, premiership is going to perhaps be uh, settled, uh, at least in, in its initial uh, weeks, unlike we saw with the, the trust, trust uh, regime. Thank you very much. Bye bye.